Welcome to the Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Brought to you by Campbell's new chunky spicy soup. It's time to get fired up. Make sure you find the Raptor Show wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. And please rate and review this show. I'm your host, Wayne Blue. I'm joined by co-host Blake Murphy. We got an action-packed episode for you. We got four guests, one for each segment. And at one point, you and I are actually going to taste the soup on air. So looking forward to all that. Blake, how are you doing, man? You all right? Yeah, I'm okay. Uh, I would just like to say before we taste the soup that the fact that we're both going to be very sweaty 20 minutes into this segment has nothing to do with the the soup, even though spice it level? might be uh, yeah, the spice level might be high. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's hot in the in the studio. Hoodies right were uh, were a bad idea today, and now I can't even drink a coffee. Okay, there we go. Um, okay, so before we bring in Michael Grange, because we will bring in Michael Grange. Um. Yeah, before we bring in Michael Grinch, uh, I just wanted to touch in on the fact that, yeah, Scotty did not make it to the All-Star game. Uh, the reserves were announced yesterday. Um, your reaction to Scotty not making the All-Star game? Yeah, I'm not I'm not surprised. I think on merit, he should be an All-Star reserve. I hope he gets into one of these. Uh, they're they're going to be replacement spots. You know, it doesn't sound like Julius Randle will be back in time for the All-Star game. Uh, Joel Embiid, we're still waiting to hear more news on uh, his injury that that he suffered a meniscus injury that the news came down yesterday, but the timeline and, and the treatment plan have not come down yet. So there are potentially a few other spots. Obviously, people can argue they're snubs or whatever. Um, I think as we discussed, this probably came down to coaches look at team record first. That's not universal. Obviously, the Lakers got a couple guys in there. The, the Warriors are not a particularly good team. But in the Eastern Conference, that last spot, the spot that was most debated, went to Paolo Bancaro. And I think, you know, Scotty Barnes on paper has a very good case next to Paolo's season. I think you could put Trey Young in there with those guys as well. But the Magic are eight games ahead of the Raptors in the standings. And I think, not I think, we have literally had coaches tell us over the years that that is a thing that they really Mm -hmm. factor into their voting. Um, So it's unfortunate. I know fans were pretty disappointed. Uh, (laughs) Some of them pointed the finger at at media and stuff like that. Like, we don't have a vote, to be clear. Mm. It's just the coaches. And the reality of this is that even though I believe Scotty Barnes should have been an all-star reserve on merit, you know, we have a long history of coaches voting on these things that kind of warned us that this was coming. Yeah. So I guess my question is, like, what could have you done better? I mean, this, the, te- year, the team example. record it really is it, and that's not on him. Like, they don't trade OG. They don't trade okay. Pascal. IQ, RJ, and Jakob all don't get hurt right in the lead-up to coach voting so mm-hmm. that you've gone, like, what, 2-9 and nine in their last 11 or whatever? Yeah. Um, you know, if if those guys are healthy or if OG and or Pascal are still around, the Raptors win a handful more games. You know, some of those passes that Scotty makes the cutters get finished, so the assist totals are a little better. I just think they need to be a little better better in the standings. I think Scotty himself individually is very much on the right trajectory to mm-hmm. being an all-star as soon as next year, if not as an injury replacement this year. So another way to look at it um, is which players could he potentially knock off, right? Because I think, I mean, you're going to have to take somebody's spot, and mm-hmm. it's going to be somebody really good. You know, Jalen Brown made it, for example, for a Celtics team that is, you know, uh, just excellent in the standings. Uh, you know, you have to see. I think him and Paolo might be fighting for the similar spot even next year uh, mm-hmm. when it comes around. And so, yeah, if there is one player that you think that, you know, Scotty could take it from this guy next year, who do you think that player is? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like someone on the older end is probably okay. my yeah. answer. Like yeah. these things, you know, the West, we didn't quite see it yet in the way we expected. But at some point, like, a lot of the guys in the league who get the kind of status vote in mm-hmm. are starting to age out, right? Yeah. Like 
Um, like Steph's coming off the bench this year and, and he's probably got another all-star season or two. And like the coaches might always vote, but like that class of guy is going to age out uh, eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I also think there's room for like, like the back part of the all-star, there's going to be some churn, right? Like what if Julius Randle, you know, he's 30 next year. What if he's just not quite yeah, yeah, yeah. as good? What if the Knicks take a step back? Um, yeah, I don't know. A, a lot can change. Um, it's it's hard to, you know, Paolo's probably the one that this year seems most in range. I get. I think I'd probably, if I had to predict one of these guys to not make the All-Star game la- next year, I think Julius Randle, just given his age and sure. style of game. Yeah. Um, and the Knicks have been, like, such a fun story this year that I think people wanted to make sure that they had two representatives. Um, I think they deserve it, honestly. Yeah, they I had him on my list, yeah. Yeah, so did I. Yeah. Um, but I think, like, if I were picking someone who I'm less certain of making it next year, it's probably Randle from that list. Is there someone different for you? No, I mean, I think those are all good candidates. And I think long-term for the health and the success of the Raptors as a franchise, like, Scotty needs to be better than those guys, like, clear-cut better than those guys because he's going to be expected to lead the group in a way that a lot of these other names aren't. Like, we're talking about players who are already kind of secondary options on their team who we're comparing to, like, you know, Randall is secondary to Brunson and Brown is secondary to Tatum. It's like, ideally, your number one guy is better than some of the number twos around. And so that's what I'm looking forward to see. But, um, yeah, unfortunately he misses it. Uh, hopefully next year he has a better shot. Or maybe with the injury reserves, there will be at least two injury reserves for the Eastern Conference, considering Joel Embiid's out and uh, Randall is out as well. But um, Oh, I guess Bam is a guy who, even though... At, yeah, you could take like, Bam's spot, maybe. Yeah, the, yeah. Im- the impact that Bam has is there, and he's always going to have a bit of the, like, heat culture, and, and, like, he'll be better in the playoffs. But, like... Bam has been, like, not very good the last six weeks. Like, it's not out of the realm of possibility that Bam mixes in just a, yeah. a season where it's like, yeah, you're impacting the game, but we're not going to vote you an all-star this year. For sure. Especially For sure. if the Heat take a step back at some point. So, yeah. um, All right, well, moving on to the game today. So the Raptors are in Houston. They're taking on uh, Fred Van Vliet and the Houston Rockets. And, uh, you know, covering that game for us is Michael Grange on Sportsnet. Uh, Grange, how you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Good to uh, good to be on with you guys. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, so for anyone who hasn't read the story already um, and wants to, you know, go over the, the wounds of last year, um, your story is up uh, on sportsnet.ca with Toronto still close to his heart. Van Vliet leading young Rockets uh, by example. You know, before I even get into the story and just sort of relitigate what happened, what went wrong with last year, um, how was it just catching up with Fred? Did he, did he make time for media again? Yeah, no, he was really good. We, we'd, uh, there's a couple of others on the trip and, um, you know, they kind of just arranged that we'd speak to him after the game against New Orleans. And, uh, you know, it wasn't like we were there for an hour, but it was a good, healthy chunk of time. And he was very gracious and, uh, you know, it was, it was refreshing to kind of see him after not, uh, cause really there's been almost no interaction, you know, and he's been pretty low profile. He hasn't done like any big takeouts or anything. So it was nice to catch up. Nice to see him. He's doing well. He's he's really enjoying Houston. His extended family is enjoying him being back in the states, and kind of uh, it's a nice little uh, getaway, I guess, if you're uh, if you're in Rockford to come down to Houston this time of year. So all that stuff is uh, trending up for him. Okay, <clears throat> let's uh let's start with last season and then get to sort of you know the point where he is now in Houston. Um, I thought one quote that really stood out uh, was Fred saying, "quote." I don't think I bonded as well as I would have liked to with just a group in general. On the court, chemistry was fine. There was no beef or disconnect there. Uh, but I didn't have the relationships that I had with Kyle and Damar and Marcus Gasol and Serge Ibaka and Norm Powell. Um, 
you know, what's, give us the context around what he was saying there and also just, you know, uh, maybe his connectivity with the group last season. Yeah, I mean, that one, of course, jumped out. And I think, you know, the context was just him reflecting on, you know, his development as a leader and, and his uh, role with the Raptors the last couple of years, you know, sort of post-Kyle, I guess, and how that translates into his experience with Houston. And just that, you know, he's kind of, maybe taking a little bit of ownership there where, you know, that's something, you know, that maybe got away from him a little bit. And, you know, there's a lot of dynamics at, at play. And, uh, you know, I would point out, I think if you're trying to manage a group where you yourself are pending a contract extension or free agency, and then, you know, what, four, six of your starting lineup is in the same boat, um, you're going to have some challenges, especially if the wins don't come. So, um, yeah, I mean, that was the context and, and, and I thought it was a, you know, a pretty honest and frank uh, answer to what I think we sort of knew anyway. It was just interesting to hear him express it that way. Um, with respect to last year, there's obviously some of the, you know, the relationship management stuff that he talked to you about. Did you get the sense at all? And I'm sure he's not going to come out and say A to B, like, hey, there is the contract and future uncertainty. And there was, you know, maybe I didn't do the best job dynamic wise, you know, blending the two eras in the locker room. And also my play took a dip off. Did he kind of give any indication as to whether those things were related or just kind of happened since? Because he did, like, I know his scoring numbers are down this year, but he's, like, back to being more efficient, certainly back to being a way better playmaker. Like, part of last year was also that his play took a bit of a dip from, like, the all-star level it had been at before. Um, did you get a sense of if those things were connected at all? You know, it wasn't, that wasn't, that didn't come up, I guess I would say, and you know, but I think it's totally reasonable to throw that all in the stew. Like, I mean, you know, the one, you know, comment Fred has made in advance of us talking the other day was, you know, last season was a drag, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and I think he said that on the Woj pod and, and um, you know, and, I'm, and it's a little bit of everything. And I, I was kind of looking through some old stories and you go back to in January when, uh, you, uh, you know, it was reported from a couple of different places, myself included, where, uh, you know, he turned down a contract extension and, and you know, Fred really took that head on and said, look, it was never offered. And that was in, in at a point in the season, early January, where the Raptors season was really kind of unraveling. He wasn't playing well. And it kind of <clears throat> kind of looked a little badly on him that he turned down a huge chunk of money when mm. at that particular moment, it didn't look like it'd be out there for him. So, um, you know, we didn't we didn't really go all the way down that road, but um you know, I just think that the the context context there is is as we said, it was just it was just a tough. Uh, there were, I think, there was just too many threads to try and need to, that needed to be woven together to expect even someone like Fred, who's a, I think a pretty gifted leader, to pull that off. And uh, again, I don't think it's his fault that he wasn't able to pull it off. I just think that you know the circumstances were really you know you're always kind of swimming against the current to kind of get an NBA locker room to sort of all sing from the song, same songbook. There's just so many different uh, pressures on all the different individuals involved. Um, but, you know, when at a certain point, I just think it's kind of a little overwhelming. And and that's that's where the Raptors were last year, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, there's some, again, there's, uh, there's some really good quotes from Fred in this piece. And, you know, um, the one thing I think that's becoming really really clear about last year especially now that it's uh, in the past and people can kind of talk about it more freely because they're not here uh fred also said in terms of the shift in priorities for the raptors right and 
you know, he said, quote, you can feel the shift. I know the Raptors. Uh, we feel like we're the only team in the NBA going through this, but it's not specific to that team. I mean, there's a lot of teams going through it where you're trying to win, you're trying to build, you got young guys, you got a couple of vets, and you're just trying to figure it out. I think you can just kind of feel the dynamic shifting a little bit last year when things kind of went a little different than what we're used to in terms of our culture and just the day-to-day. And that's when I was like, okay, you know what? Masai is not going to deal with this forever. And that's when you knew that things were going to change eventually. I I, I always wonder about this because it does feel like the Raptors clearly had like a, a, a definitive culture with how they did things under Colin DeMar and then how they really seamlessly, in, in hindsight brought up all these young players, like a Fred, like a Pascal, like a Norm, OG, et cetera, et cetera, Jakob, I, I suppose, too. Um, and then I guess the we just kind of thought that that would always go on and that it'll happen again with this group. Why? What were some of the factors you think that went into that disconnect? I think there's, there's I would say, there's a couple of different things. One, when that young group was coming up, uh, they were all, and Fred being you know the epitome of it, mm-hmm. each of them were guys who um, had no choice but to buy in, put their head down and do whatever was expected of them or, you know, to carve out an NBA career. Nothing was promised to any of those guys. And we all know their stories very well. Um, And in in addition to that, you had in place a very clear hierarchy, a very clear um, expression of who the leaders were on that team as they joined it. And it was a pretty good team to begin with as those players started cycling through. And so I think that, that combination of those two things, who the young guys were coming in and who the veterans were pre-existing made, you know, and I don't think it was by design, you know, I think it was probably just, you know, an incredible set of circumstances that they were able to recognize and leverage, but um, it made for a very special environment. <clears throat> and then, you know, move forward and you had, uh, you know, I, I don't think, you know, Fred, Pascal, to an extent, OG maybe, were as established maybe in their careers um, as what was in place before. Mm-hmm. And then you had some of the new guys coming in and like, look, it always gets put at Scotty's feet. I don't know if that's fair or not, but, um, you know, he is sort of the outlier in the sense of it's been a long time, like maybe ever since the Raptors have had a guy that young, that good, with that much expectation mm-hmm. uh, put on him. Um, you you could really almost go oh, back yeah. to Vince, yeah, and um, and so, you know, and and I think, you know, there's some documentation I've made reference to some kind of conflict and tension between those two entities, and um, you know, I I it, I I can't say I can't say exactly how extreme it was. I don't think it was all that bad. Like I don't think they were at each other's throats by any means, but I do think that. You know, with that dynamic and then heaped on top of it, more importantly, I would say the just the individual stresses that, you know, Fred was dealing with, Pascal was dealing with, OG was dealing with, uh, Gary was dealing with it to a certain extent in terms of their own professional trajectories. Um, It just was a tough environment, you know, and then you had Scotty coming off an amazing year, the world being laid at his feet. Um, and you know, I recall Nick Nurse kind of cryptically in training camp saying, you know, the big, the big question here is going to be. You know, last year, as was in a rookie year, everything was easy, and it's not going to be as easy just because it's not in the NBA. How's he going to deal with it? And I think, you know, there was an adjustment period for Scotty that was going on at the same time. So just a just a kind of a swirl of things. And, uh, you know, it led to a kind of disappointing season and, and I think a recognition 
Um, I would say not soon enough, but a recognition that uh, things needed to change. So that recognition you mentioned there, not soon enough. And I, and I know that, you know, Masai's talked about this at this point, but I, I do want to redo part of the conversation, which is, you know, at the deadline last year, they had been told no on an extension by Fred. They knew these locker room things and these encore things were happening they ultimately decided, hey, we'll, we'll add Jakob Pertl and maybe that's the right thing. And then obviously they have, they have since, you know, changed direction on that. Um, without, I don't know about you, I've never really got a clear sense of what the specific offers available for Fred Van Vliet were at the deadline last year, other than that they existed. Um, that's, that's about as much as I've been able to make from it. Um, looking back now, and I know that they thought, hey, if he heads the free agency, Teams are going to need to sign and trade for him. Nobody has cap space. He's not going to go join a bad team. And then the Rockets didn't do the Harden thing and suddenly had all this cap space. So you can understand how it played out this way. Um, but do you, you know, what do you make of that decision at the trade deadline last year now in kind of the light of day with, with how that offseason went that followed and the fact that, you know, Fred's telling it like this shouldn't have been all that big a surprise that he was looking at other options. Yeah, I think... Um... You know, contextually, you know, and 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 the size sort of talked relatively openly about this is is at the time the offers were underwhelming. You know, it was maybe maybe a first, maybe seconds, and I think you know the way it was explained to me, there was some sensitivity to taking a guy and who's been so important to this team and putting him while in a contract year, while at the trade deadline, still kind of struggling in a for him by his standards subpar year. And putting him in an environment where, you know, he couldn't be expected to thrive. And then his free agency is is you're kind of scuppering his free agency ahead of time. You know, it's it's I think they there was there was felt a certain responsibility for that. And when weighed against the return, you know, the judgment was, look, let's do right by the player here. And um, you know, that's one version I've got. I can't say that that's that's exactly how everything played out, and that's why every decision was made. But um, you know, I think if if the choice was sort of try and do right by Fred versus uh, we're going to send him away for a player we don't want and a couple of, you know, so-so seconds on a pure asset management basis, yeah, I guess that's probably the right, right thing to do. But, you know, are you really um, are you really advancing your team by doing that? I would suggest probably not. Probably not. I mean, I think the bigger question is, you know, it, coming off of that 48 win team the year before knowing that all these issues were going to be facing you knowing that you had players who were you know in fred and pascal were going to be seeking maximum dollars when their turn came in free agency and you know you know could you've been ahead of the curve at that point and had you been ahead of the curve been more proactive uh would the returns you know in any of these situations been better and more palatable to all concerned and you know, I think there's a fair argument to say, yeah, that that, that, that could have happened. There, there's certainly this feeling when I'm hearing this all back that I wish it all had been handled differently because I don't think that we arrived at, like, the perfect opportunity, at least right now. But um, at least for Fred, it definitely worked out. Houston was there. The money was there. Um, you know, he switched agencies mid-season. is always a good sign um, of a player potentially leaving if they switch agencies. Um, you know, we saw OG have a big similar move. But... Um, yeah, now he's in Houston, and I, I'm curious because I think you see that transparency from him from him saying that like maybe he wasn't the right leader or could have led in a different way or try to keep the group together. That's his exact job now in Houston. 
And you got a lot of quotes in there from his uh, his teammates talking about Fred and, and following him. And, you know, in, in a way, Houston's not that dissimilar than what Toronto was. They also had a lot of, like, young guys that they wanted to essentially, you know, bring together and, and shift their focus. And it seems like, at least from the quotes and just watching the Rockets play plenty this year, they are more serious professionals. They are kind of taking it seriously. And doesn't seem like they're having any issues with Fred. So I, I guess my last question is just, How's Fred learning from what he did in Toronto and, and taking that to lead the Rockets now? Yeah, I, I, that's, you know, I thought that was really interesting and, and, and you know, really, you know, coming into Houston, he's kind of anointed the leader versus, you know, this the status he reached in Toronto. He had very much worked and gained organically. Um, but, and rather than, you know, having, say, like one kind of, potential superstar earlier in his career to kind of connect with in Scotty, you've got basically about five guys mm-hmm. who kind of fit that profile. Yeah. And, and so it's, it was kind of interesting and that's where it came from where, where he was really reflecting on, on, you know, what worked and worked, what, what he needed to improve in his own approach uh, to make this work here in Houston. And, and I think, you know, just maybe leave on this note, what I really kind of, I found very, um, compelling in some of the conversation or some of the comments Fred made. And this comes also for me in the context of, you know, when we were here the other night, New Orleans was here. So we got to connect with uh, Jonas Valanciunas the night before, a couple of nights before we were in uh, Chicago, saw DeMar DeRozan, um, you know, just not too far removed from, you know, kind of cutting up with Norm Powell and, and all of that. And, you know, what Fred said was, you know, that quote used off the top was, was that sort of what he's trying to recreate in Toronto? In other words, and what I found like very compelling and, and, and encouraging and, and I think gratifying in a way is, is that what, what, what we saw as fans or people covering the team in that era, say 13, 14, 15, 16 on through the championship was, was, it actually was really special. It actually was uh, something that you do not, uh, casually recreate that doesn't happen all the time and doesn't last very often often when it does and so for fred being sort of so-called raised in that environment as an nba player um that's his standard that's what he's trying to bring in to 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 bring to houston um you know he wants and is seeking and recognizing how important those kind of bonds and relationships are on and off the floor and i think if you're a raptors fan and and you know like look there's a long road here to kind of recreate a lot of that in 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 the toronto market but you know to see um you know that special era being you know kind of held out as something that that another team can strive for you know, I think it's kind of a really neat thing. And and I think that, that uh, you know, if Fred can pull it off here in Houston with the talent that's that's in that building, um, you know, they can do some big things. But I, I thought that was a really kind of interesting and compelling thing for him to say. And, and again, for, you know, each of us having been around, you know, a lot of these players, what I just mentioned, mm. uh, it kind of resonated. Yeah, for sure. Well, Grange, I uh, appreciate you know, you joining us on the show once again. This is a it's it's fun to go back over old history, but at the same time, I think it's it's good to keep that perspective too. Because, um, yeah, we don't really know what's ahead, right? So, uh, at least we can kind of figure out what happened, uh, you know, last year and be and before that. So, Grange, I appreciate you and uh, have a safe rest of the road trip. Thanks for having me on, guys. Enjoy the rest of the day. All right, Michael Grange, Sportsman. Yeah. 
We say bye now. We're definitely going to have him on early next week because it's trade deadline oh, week. Yeah. He's on the road the whole time. Yeah, Grange, if you're still on the line, um, we're booking you again. Yeah, but come I'll, back. I'll, I'll, t- I'll text you. I'll text you. Come back. Uh, listen, before we go to break, actually. So, yeah. We um, we have been teasing this all week. Yeah, open the door. Bring it in. Let's we've, go. We've been teasing this all week. Uh, we obviously have a new sponsor in Campbell's. Uh, and, you know, we've been talking about this new chunky spicy soup. And... What's the point of talking about it all the time if we don't do the taste test? It's mm-hmm. like right here, it's always taunting us. So what we're going to do is this, all right? We have our super producer, Mark Boffo. His uh, wonderful job is to literally come in the studio and bring us soup. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right. This is what happens when you, Thanks, when you listen on the podcast. You can't see us drinking soup. And so we both have the soup in front of us. And we're going to each give each other one spicy take. And then we're going to taste it to see how spicy that take really right. was. Let's hope the fresh retainer holds up here. Uh, yeah. So do you want to go first? Or you want me to go first? Now you go first. I'm going to eat some of this soup. All right. So my spicy take is, look, it's cool. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's certainly interesting in like a way that I think um, fills a lot of airwaves, you know, gets a lot of interest and, and gen- generates a lot of like reflection. And I'm sure a lot of people argue back and forth on was Fred right, was Fred wrong. My spicy take is it doesn't actually matter. I, I think that spicy. The, the real thing here was they didn't have enough talent to, like, lead the group in the same way that Kyle and DeMar did. And I feel like that's rude to say in a way, but, like, that's actually the most important part. The dynamics, of course, that's going to always have to come. But I think the talent just wasn't, like, on par. And they also just the roster itself behind them as well wasn't nearly as talented. So, like, yeah, it was dysfunctional, but I, I don't know. I I... I I think that's secondary to the fact that they just needed more talent, period. Yeah, I mean, I think what they had was, like, very good talent if it was orbiting around someone who was very, very good as mm. the the kind of 1A. And, like, okay. Scotty could be that eventually, but, like, you can't ask those guys to hold in place for years while you wait for Scotty to develop into that. Um, it's tough because, like, you look at, like, the leaderboards, you look at people's all-star ballots, or you look at... I don't know, whatever your metric is that, that you like or, yeah. or just, like, the team performance. Like, Pascal's really good on the Pacers. OG's yeah. really good on the Knicks. Fred's really good on the Rockets. Uh-huh. Scotty's really good on the Raptors. Yeah. Like, if that was your two through five, like, you're in really good shape. Uh, if it's your one through four, you know, maybe it's just it doesn't coalesce yet. My takeaway from this is actually is not even really the talent side. I think it's just that maybe because we experienced it and it felt normal for, like, seven, eight years – um, I don't know, but like you look at a team like the Knicks right now and why they're clicking okay. and why they're so fun and why they're outperforming their individual talent level and stuff, which was like a Raptors special for years, is like my takeaway from the way these last few years have played out is that there is a talent component missing and certainly the like the depth stuff really hurt. Like you should not have, be having to play those guys 42 minutes because you only have six players on your team. Like yeah. that part of yeah. it hurts. But I really do think, and I'm going to go Katie Heindel here, that that kind of less tangible, the way people and like, yeah, on-court fit and skill set fit and things like that is important as well, but also how you build that culture and maintain that culture. And I think the the thought of the front office was always that, well, what Kyle and Damar and Dwayne Casey and stuff built, that can carry over generationally because like the way the Spurs did for a long time, the way the Heat have, because there are always going to be connector pieces and it just didn't work out that way. And I think that you know, as much as or more than the talent thing, that's what kind of eroded here because we are still left with the fact that Fred walked away for a two-year full, full max. Mm -hmm. Pascal got you three first-round picks. 
OG got you two starting caliber players, one whom people think might have some all-star upside. Like, they obviously had good players. Um, maybe not the right number one to orbit around it all, but I really do all think, right. you know, the, the off-court stuff is... Uh, I'm it's a- not even underrated. It's just it's so hard to capture that you can't really talk about it the same way. Okay, you know what? Maybe I'll alter the take. This is, this is my new and improved spicy take, okay? If you have clear-cut talent, this kind of, like, pecking order, this type of whose team is it, sorts itself out. Mm-hmm. And that I much I agree with. That that to me was just like, if Scotty was by year two definitively above these other guys, it would have been his team. When if, he if was Katie's, roughly on the same level or Katie, like a little Steph below, Clay can figure it out. Yeah, eh, you know what? You're right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, That's no, it. I'm with you. That yeah. that that'll kind of reveal itself. Anyway, but it is Good fun take. to go back on this. Do you have a take for me as well? Or? Yeah, sure. This soup's really good, by the way. Oh yeah, yeah um, I'm gonna try it right now. And the retainer's holding up. Mm. Uh, my take is not particularly spicy. This is uh, so these cans also. These cans also have a little spice meter oh, on the side. Know, it's got a little kick. If this one's got a little kick. So this I'm one's supposed to be up. a three out of five. Mm. Um, I so think three, this take's okay. going to be more like a one and a half out of five. But okay. in all this all-star discussion, mm. I think my biggest takeaway is that um, we need to expand the all-star rosters a little bit. And I'm not saying that because like, oh, there's more talent than before. Like there is. The higher end of the talented guys are more talented than before. The thing we talked about the other day where 25 points a game is the new 20 points per game. Um, but honestly, what this comes down to for me is like NB- the NBA has actually expanded roster sizes over the years. So it's weird now that an all-star team only has 12 guys when an NBA roster has 18 guys and 15 mm. guys can be active every night. Okay, That part of it All is right. weird to me. Um, but I also think it would like be in the league's best interest to have more guys. who. And, and I know there's the risk of like diluting what an all-star means and stuff like that. I think it does the league well to have like a few more of these spots and... and more guys who get in the conversation and things like that. It's not a take. Makes sense, yeah. Yeah, I don't feel crazy strong about it, but it is very weird to me that all-star rosters are, at this point, significantly smaller than actual NBA rosters. Yeah, I like that take. You know what? I'm going to add an extra it's, spiciness it's to that It's not that, that spicy. I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw a little more spice into that. I want, you know how there's NBA two-way contracts? Mm-hmm. I want two-way all-stars, all right? Just guys who are, like, almost there. <laughs> you're really good. Like, you're like Scotty this year would have been a two-way all-star. Oh, I thought you meant like just the best two ways also no, get to be no, no, like no. Jonte Porter's no, in the no. All Star game. No, no, no. Just like the essentially all the injury reserves okay. should be two way, two way call ups. Okay. Yeah. 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 There you go. All right, we're gonna take a break so we can drink drink the rest of the soup. This is great. You eat soup, by the way. You don't drink soup. Like this uh, is like has noodles and big chunks of chicken and carrots in it. I'm not mm. drinking chicken and carrot. Okay. You know what? That's a good debate. I'm do you drink eating, or do you eat? I soup? I eat soup. You eat soup. Yeah. Mm. Do you eat ramen? Ramen is not soup, man. But do you eat ramen or drink ramen? I eat the ramen, but that okay. This is a this is a different it's the debate. Same. There are noodles and meat in here uh-huh. and a broth. Yeah. So what are we doing? We're eating and drinking. We're eating it. Uh, okay. This is you know what this is gonna argue. We're gonna argue for this for the whole five minutes. Yeah. Break. We're going to Houston to to decide <laughs> this. We're gonna talk to Kelly and see what he thinks. <laughs> you know that's gonna be the first question we ask him. So I've been your host Willie. You've been listening to the Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network, brought to you by Campbell's new Chunky Spicy Soup. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkus Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Raptors show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. I'm your host, Wayne Lou. I'm joined by co-host, Blake Murphy, we're also joined online by Kelly Eco, Houston Rockets beat writer for The Athletic. Um, Kelly, 
the pressing question besides Fred Van Vliet <laughs> and everything else, um, do you drink soup or do you eat soup? You you eat soup. Thank you. Why? You know, does it depend on the consistency? Like, you know, is, is there like a... Is... It, depends, it depends on what's in it. Like if it's a chunky beef soup or yeah. it's like a chicken, chicken mm. broth. You know, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to chew what's in the actual soup. So I, I would say you eat soup. Thank you. Mm. I appreciate you, Kelly. All right, what that's... about like a cream, like a cream of Okay, but broccoli that's, that's not the soup we were eating. We were just eating yeah, soup, soup on soup, air. Soup isn't cereal. Soup is not cereal. So like... It's you have to actually there's meat in it, so you actually have to eat it. You're not gonna drink the meat. So. Wait, what? You don't drink, you drink cereal? This is, this is another conversation. I don't know. I just I don't really eat cereal or drink cereal, so I don't really uh, I don't really know. Don't in sponsor this case, our show, but... so until that point, uh, yeah, we'll not be drinking or eating cereal. Um, okay, Kelly, we, we got to ask you about the Houston Rockets Raptors play uh, in Houston tonight. Um, right. We want to start with Fred because he's uh, you know such a relevant character, at least here in Toronto. Um, you know, seeing him and the work that he's done with Houston this year, um, you know, from the the signing of, of Fred, which I suppose became a bit of a surprise because there was so much talk that you guys were going after James Harden. You guys go after Fred instead, and you guys want to build a new culture. How has he done that so far? Uh, and how has he done individually as well? So I think, obviously, um, you guys in Toronto are well aware of Fred's leadership ability and the way he's able to galvanize a group around him. I think coming to Houston where you had a locker room full of, you know, talented young players, but guys that were, you know, desperately you know, crying out for a leader. I think Fred's coming and he's able to bend that big brother, that guy to lean on the, the piece of advice and guidance. And then obviously on the court where he's able to provide structure in an order, he's able to be an extension of email Doka on the floor for those young guys. And you can see clearly why, you know, they needed a, a, a stabilizer so badly. You know, you see people like Jalen Green, Players like Alfred Shingoon, Jabari Smith Jr. that just needed someone that could get things together and get things in order. And I think Fred's come in and he's been humble. He hasn't come in and demanded the ball. He's just come in and said, look, guys, like I'm here for a reason. I'm here to do a job. And in order for me to do that job, you guys have to all not only buy into Ime, but buy into me as well. And I think they've done that through the first you know, half of the season. And individually, it's worked for him. Obviously, some of the counting stats are down, but um, that's almost entirely because his, his scoring usage is down. He's being more of a true point guard now. Efficiency's right. gone up. The assists are way up. The turnovers are actually down, even though he's you know passing more. When we dig into those numbers, what really pops to me is the chemistry that he's built with Alperen Shangun on the offensive side. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that two-man dynamic is like because we've seen like point guard center combos in the past who are really effective they are on pace fred is on pace to assist alper and shangun more times this year than any combo in basketball since russell westbrook to kevin durant in 2015-2016 like this is a whole other level of chemistry these two have so far yeah, so I think at its core, you understand because, you know, Alperin is not a, a traditional, you know, center. He's not a rim running, you know, rolling big. So he's understood pretty quickly that to get the best out of Alperin, he needs to find him the ball, you know, because Alperin is not only going to, you know, get it back to him, but I'll find someone else. Fred is very capable at seeing the floor pretty quickly. He's able at orchestrating a half court setting with Alperin because both him and Fred are, are unselfish guys at heart. They want the ball to be moving. They want guys to be cutting. They want to have actions on and off the ball. And I think Fred has, has been the kind of guy, historically, he's never just 
pounded the ball into the ground, right? He's always been, you know, having to share the ball with the likes of Scotty Barnes or or Gary Trent or Pascal Siakam. So he knows how to, you know, take a step back and allow other guys to dominate the ball and have guys to have the lion's share of usage and still be able to be effective. And there's a reason why he's averaging, I think, a career high assist to turnover ratio because mm-hmm. he's just not having the ball 20 seconds in the shot clock. He's making quick decisions with the ball, get it to Al P either screen and roll or screen and pop and get it back and keep the ball moving. So I think just that having those two guys and their high IQ is the biggest reason why that two-man game has been so effective for them. So I was just going to say, you know, you you and Sam Amick and Shams had this uh, great piece the other day at The Athletic about how, you know, not only – did they accelerate this in the offseason by going after Fred, by going after Dylan Brooks, by going after Ime Udoka, who's done a really nice job there as well. Um, but now it's like like things have clicked really, really quickly, and maybe it changes the timeline here. Um, I guess this is kind of a bigger picture Rockets question, but how much has the success of adding Fred and Dylan uh, and Udoka, you know, uh, again, to the point of this piece, we thought this was going to be a long-term build back for Houston. It doesn't really seem like that anymore. Yeah, I mean, it just feels like the minute he may walk to the building, you know, everything changed in terms of what their expectations were, what their potential was. Obviously, the floor and ceiling of a rebuilding team. You have guys like, you know, Dylan Green, Jabari Smith Jr., Tarason that are talented guys, but once he comes in and immediately demands excellence, order, accountability, and then he brings in players where well, he helps with the front office to bring in players like a Dylan Brooks and a Fred Van Vliet and a Jeff Green, guys that have won before, but they want to come in and add to a young core. Now you can kind of see, you know, if they put one or two more pieces together, they don't have to be a 10 to 11 seed. They don't have to be trying to scrape the back end of the plane. They can actually go win a first round series potentially if they, if they go and make one or two moves. So that's kind of what they mean by, the rebuild thing being pushed a little bit forward in terms of, yeah, they're currently in what they call um, this, like the first phase and the second phase, they're currently in phase two, which is supposed to be, you know, getting back to the playoffs and winning basketball. But, you know, the more and more they allow Shingun to grow, the more they allow Fred to be that leader and the more Ime is able to imprint, impart his wisdom and knowledge and control over that team, you can kind of see where they can take steps forward in the near future. So, on the subject of Ime, I kind of wanted to go back to last uh, summer when he was hired. Right. There was, at that time, you know, it was rumored that, okay, Nick was going to be out in Toronto. And that I think the first name linked to Toronto was Ime Udoka. Raptors ultimately don't even get an interview with Ime because Houston actually moved pretty quickly, if I remember. But you take us through that and if you had any information on, you know, if the Raptors, for example, could have potentially on him. Yeah, so, you know, Houston was in a position where after, you know, letting go of Steven Silas, they had a pool of, of applicants, you know, obviously Nick Nurse was also among that. But once Ime, you know, the conversation with Ime, they made it pretty clearly that that was going to be their guy. And they moved pretty quickly on trying to be aggressive, not only to finding out what Ime wanted, but how to get a deal done. You know, talking about the players he wanted, mm. talking about the stuff basketball he wanted to impart, talking about just the top to bottom accountability that he had for that roster. And just speaking with ownership, speaking with the front office, it was pretty clear that both sides were on the same page and there was no need to do this, you know, this two month, two week dance of, you know, talking to other guys and, you know, come back for a second round, 
Ime was going to be their guy from day one. So mm-hmm. after, you know, the first meeting, second meeting, it was pretty clear that he was going to be the next head coach of the Houston Rockets. So while n- names like Nick Nurse were always going to be available, you know, Ime was going to be the guy that they saw as the right man to take them forward through this next phase of Rockets basketball. Yeah, and here in Toronto, you know, there were going to be some questions about what led to Odoka being removed in Boston in the first place. And there had been some reporting about, you know, whether he'd be willing to come come to a market that's, you know, a little tougher on that and things like that. I believe Ramona Shelburne kind of said it on, on a show with us last year that there were some question marks about that. But um, on the court, there hasn't really been a question about what Imo Odoka brings to the table. Um, this is a team that's still trying to find themselves offensively, even though the Fred Shangun combination is there. Um, what has worked with that group so much defensively? I think f- defensively, they've turned up their level of aggression where they're able to, of course, because they, sometimes they play small ball, they want to shrink the floor and force turnovers, trying to you know, force the ball into the middle of, that, of, of the floor and trying to you know, use their length and width to, to create havoc. Obviously, there's. I think they're in the bottom ten. I think in opponent first turnovers, but from a just a switchability standpoint, a versatility standpoint, the likes of Jabari, Tari, Dylan, um, Alperin to some extent, Jeff Green, and Fred for sure. You're able to have different lineups out there. Now you throw in a Man Thompson, um, someone that can come in and add his length and switchability. They be able to be forceful and aggressive from the point of attack defense and. I think for the Rockets, for them to get to where they want to be, it has to be on the defensive end because offensively, they're still going through, you know, some early adjustments, you know, having to find the hierarchy, who's going to get the ball when and, and how, just the spacing overall, the three-point shooting is down. So they have to lean on their defense a lot. So, you know, that goes back to email Doka's principles, you know, communication, number one aggression number two and then just versatility number three so i think they've been able to do all three of those and that's why they're i think they're still a top seven eight you know right now yeah they're still seven in defense which is and they've been that the whole year basically in that range right. and that's really impressive considering you look at the personnel um on the team i mean the, the the best individual defender is dylan brooks and i want to ask you what's what's that like covering dylan brooks on a daily basis and um, I think uh, we just had an interview here with R.J. Barrett, who clearly play, has played with Dylan for a long time, like since they were kids, basically, uh, with the national program as well. And he, he said, basically, like, Dylan's the nicest guy you'd ever meet. But, of course, on the court, on the court, yeah. it's totally different. So tell me about the, 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 I guess, the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of thing. So, yeah, like, it's funny because the first time I actually spoke with Dylan was um, in Summer League. And this was right after, you know, he, the Rockets made that deal, and I was blown away by the fact that he might be in the top two, three of nicest guys I've ever talked to in the league. Mm-hmm. I talked to a lot of people in the league, but if, you know, you seeing him on TV and hearing the sound bites, and you know, they'll poke the bear. You, you would think that he's a certain kind of individual, mm-hmm. but when you actually get to spend time with him, he's a super down to earth, super humble, funny guy in the locker room. Now on the court, he turns the the page to like the villain or whatever, yeah. and then you see the pregame stare downs and the, 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 the fouls and the hacks and whatever, but they love it. They love it. He brings that toughness. He brings that tenacity. He brings a certain edge that has been lacking on this team for a long time, probably since PJ Tucker. So for him to come in and, and he's also shooting pins up the ball this season. So it, it helps that he's not just a, you know, he's able to be the actual two way presence for them. And he actually gives them, you know, a, a stabilizing presence on the defensive end to go out and do certain things and have certain matches and switch and blitz and do all kinds of stuff. So 
he's been a huge part for them, man. And he's a super nice guy to talk to. He always, you know, tell you what's going on. He'll give it to you straight. He's not afraid of, you know, speaking his mind. So it's a good guy to talk to. 39% on threes this year. Uh, between that and how hot he shot for Canada, he's the one guy who the NOAA analytics board at the Raptors facility has worked for to improve the three-point shooting. Um, okay, so he's going to get a teammate back. This is a bit of a weird trade to ask you about because Steven Adams isn't going to play for the Rockets this year. He's out for the year. But yesterday, the Rockets traded uh, Victor Oladipo's injured expiring right. contract and three second round picks for Steven Adams. When we talk about, hey, the Rockets are like, they're getting ready to win now. Um, and if not, you know, immediately this season, but, but pretty soon, what is that? you know, cashing in three second round picks for Steven Adams, who won't even be a factor until next year. What does that tell you about where Houston's at right now? So the trade in itself for Steven Adams, it does two things, you know, on the court, obviously it gives them next season, someone that can come in and be the biggest thing for Houston this season was to find a capable, you know, backup behind Alperin Shingo. And it seems like, you know, for like 20, 15, 20 minutes a game, someone that can come in and change the game, be a rim protector, help on the glass, you know, set screens with his spacing. He's always been a great guy doing that. Um, they've looked for a guy of that caliber to to be able to come in and be that presence. You know, the signing with Jock hasn't turned out as, as they'd hoped. You know, obviously they still have Jeff Green, you know, for their small ball, but you still need a physical presence down there if Alper's not on the floor. So um, he may kind of stretch that, I think, this week in pregame talking about, you know, the Rockets needed to go get another big, and they, they got one the next day. So um, even though he's not be able to – he won't be able to step in and play this season, down the line it's going to be able to help. And in the case that he doesn't, you know, he's still – I think he's making 12 million a year. So if next season comes and there's a bigger deal down the line, they can always aggregate his salary as well to, to go find another star or something like that so i think it does two things for them it gives them a little bit more wiggle room it did cost them three second round picks which is a lot but um if you look towards the bigger picture of potentially you know adding another star or giving outpunching in a capable capable you know presence behind him it makes a lot of sense now have you talked to rockets pr yet about like hey are we gonna have access to steven adams because i feel like it could be a big boost for you as well like you've already got fred and dylan who are really good quotes on that team you had steven adams one of the funniest guys in the nba you add him to the mix you're you're gonna have a lot of color for these stories man yeah so so he he's actually gonna rehab you know continues rehab in houston so i hope to see him at some point because i've heard i've seen the quotes he's a he's a hell of a quote (laughs) he's hilarious (laughs) so I'm looking forward to that experience as well, for sure. Yeah. All right, last thing. Um, what's what's all this talk about maybe they, they might trade Jalen Green or not? Because to me, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Young, promising group. You guys have already taken that step this year. Of course, you guys maybe want to get back above 500 and maybe try to contend or maybe even get – or not contend, but at least, like, make it through the plane or whatever. But I don't know. Jalen Green's very talented. I know he's, like, you know, hasn't maybe put it all together just yet, but you clearly see flashes like you've seen – couple performances this week like is, is that an actual possibility that Jalen Green might be moved yeah so you know Jalen is the one guy I think who if you look at Houston's offensive setup everything is geared towards you know if he's successful it makes everything easier you know and early on in the season he kind of had a rough adjustment period kind of figuring out where he stood you know in the hierarchy behind Fred behind Alperin just in the whole grand scheme of things so when you look at the Rockets as a front office, historically, they've always done their due diligence on the market. 
you know, they have a lot of young players. They have a lot of draft capital, which is what you want if you want to go out star hunting, right? So <clears throat> this season, like, like they've always you know, had to make their calls around the league to see, you know, what players are available. And, you know, in the previous years, it was kind of far-fetched to think that a player like a Jalen Green could be, you know, attainable, right? Like if the year he was drafted, mm-hmm. second overall, if teams would have called, they would have shut them down immediately, right? Even as far as last season. But now going into year three under a new regime, you know, if push comes to shove and there is a superstar out there that that is attainable and it does cost them, you know, a blue chip guy like a Jalen Green or Jabbar or whatever, they're more open to doing that mm. than on the last two, three years, which isn't saying anything about Jalen in particular. It's more talking about um, their long-term goals in terms of, you know, E-May trying to win and them trying to put things together to win a championship. So it's more about the team doing their due diligence on the market and just trying to see what's out there. All right. I got you. So, Kelly, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to join us on the show. And, um, yeah, you know what? Uh, say hi to Tristan for me. <laughs> he's a good guy. I love Tristan, man. Yeah, yeah. That guy's he's, he's so cold, man. No, he's legit. So cold. Give him a dap and tell him, uh, tell him I said hi tonight. All oh, right. We'll do it. All right. Thanks, Thanks, Kelly. I appreciate you. All right, we're going to take another break. Been your host, Willow. You've been listening to The Raptors Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Brought to you by Campbell's new Chunky Spicy Soup. Opinions on everything happening in Leafsland. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. I'm your host, William Lou. I'm joined by co-host Blake Murphy and for segment three, we're joined once again by Mark Stein. Uh, you know, get to get a substack, the Stein line. Uh, we we got to bring in Mark because despite him being under the weather, we need your thoughts on the on the biggest news in sports right now. Jurgen Klopp announcing that he's leaving Liverpool. I know you're a City fan, but I know this one's got to hurt you too, seeing a great manager like that walk away from uh, the EPL soon. Yeah, look, I mean, one of, the, one of the appeals of the Premier League is, you know, like the NBA, it's the people, it's the personalities, it's the dramas, and he is such a massive, massive figure, and the City-Liverpool rivalry over the last six, seven, eight years has been absorbing, and a lot of it is because of the managerial rivalry between Klopp and Pep. So, yeah, I don't, I mean, I think on some levels, most City fans are happy because the theory is it's going to weaken Liverpool. But it's a total shock to see him walk away. And uh, I'm sure you're a mess as a Liverpool fan because he is 
they're just there are very few managers of that stature, and how are they going to replace it? No, trust me. There's a, this has been a, a month of exoduses for me. You know, Pascal leaving, OG leaving, one of my show co-hosts leaving, Jurgen Klopp leaving. It's just been a lot of exits. But I, I think it's actually very cool that uh, Pep and, and, and Jurgen um, have shown each other so much respect over the years. And, yeah, I guess you don't see, like, coaching rivalries in the NBA. I would love to see that. I'd love to see, like, the cult of – personality around managers in in, in, in soccer yeah, but if you lose one playoff here. series you get fired so how are you gonna have a playoff rivalry hey, with man, someone trust me they got they got they got they got fired really quickly in, in soccer <laughs> no, too. no no they get sacked they get sacked you're right yeah. the gaffer gets sacked <laughs> yeah i don't know i just wish there were you know are there coaching rivalries off the top of your mind i don't think so well i think part of it is you know you guys have heard me complain about how we get less and less access to players in the modern nba and the coaches become the team spokesman more than ever before, but to complain about our access compared to what goes on in England with the premier league is laughable. And so the managers there really do 90 plus percent of the talking. And that's why the Klops, the peps, the Mourinho's, uh-huh. they just take on such an even larger focus. And they're just these outsized personalities because they're the ones really the only ones really who talk on behalf of their clubs. That's a lot. I don't, uh, I mean, I, I don't follow football that closely, so I don't, I don't know what that's like, but I can certainly see the parallel to where, yeah, on a, on a given week, we might talk to Darko Ryakovic like 11 times and have like two windows where we could talk to players. Um, uh, and this is not a Raptor specific thing. This is an NBA specific thing. So I don't want to sound as if I, I'm being negative toward, uh, the Raptors specifically. Um, so someone we've only gotten to talk to as, as a product of this, we might only get to talk to him like two times his entire Raptor career. Uh, Bruce Brown, probably the name that's front of mind here, Mark, as we kind of pivot from Liverpool to uh, the NBA trade deadline, which is six days away here. Um, do you have a sense yet? It, like, it seems like it's been like a little quiet since the Pascal trade league wide. And at this point, teams are probably going to grind it down uh, to the end, unless it's like a, the Steven Adams kind of 2025 oriented uh, trade. Do you have a sense of where the market might stand right now for Bruce Brown in Toronto? It's frankly been hard to pinpoint in recent days. There hasn't been a ton of Bruce Brown chatter. The message that was relayed to me and I had this, I think I wrote it exactly this way in my Thursday Substack that Masai is still seeking a first round pick for Bruce Brown at a minimum the Lakers and the Knicks continue to be mentioned as Bruce Brown teams. There are other suitors presumed, but I don't have a great list for you beyond Lakers and Knicks. And to this point, I'd have to say that first round pick hasn't materialized or we would see the deal. And I tend to agree with what the first thing that you said there at this point, when we're this close to the deadline, chances are the trades are going to land sooner, land closer to Thursday than now, although, again, six trades already since Halloween. And we had a Lillard trade right before the season started. So it has been a super active trade season already. And look, if the next four or five days are a dud, people are going to say this trade deadline was a dud. But I don't really think that's accurate when, again, you had Damian Lillard traded right before the season and then a follow-up trade to get Drew Holiday to the Celtics and then James Harden on Halloween. And then, obviously, both OG and Siakam get traded 
by the Raptors, Rozier to the Heat. You even had the Marvin Bagley deal. I mean, it's just been a slew of of moves. And, uh, you know, even yesterday, what a crazy day in the NBA <laughs> yesterday was with the All-Star Reserves and a Joel Embiid injury update emerging in the middle of the All-Star Reserves. And an hour before that, oh, yeah, Houston makes a trade to get their center, their backup center for next season. So I would push back on, you know, a preemptive pushback on the notion that if the next week isn't laden with fireworks, I, I think we've still seen quite a bit. Mm. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about just going back to the Bruce Brown thing about the first round pick maybe not materializing just yet. It's like for the Raptors, they already have three f- picks um, for sure in this draft, right? Uh, they own Detroit's second rounder, which is probably going to be the 31st pick. Uh, they got Indiana's first rounder and they got another first rounder from Indiana in that Pascal trade. Uh, this is on top of Toronto potentially being possibly able to keep their own pick uh, depending on how high they go uh, in the in the lottery odds. But yeah, I mean, is is there not at certain points like a diminishing return to getting another first round pick in, in this year's draft for Bruce Brown? And maybe that's why they might want to get a 2025 pick. And of course, that draft is loaded, et cetera, et cetera. Like, do you think that's factoring that the Raptors are suffering from having too many picks already? You're just that you even take that approach surprises me because I think, if I remember correctly, William Liu was not too thrilled with the return that the Raptors got for Siakam. I so I think one of the reasons that they made the trade when they made it was because a huge part of it was get Bruce Brown and flip him and try to make that overall return more substantial. Mm-hmm. So they don't have it yet, but I certainly don't think the Raptors are going to stop trying because I think they would like to get at least one more quality trade asset back by moving Bruce Brown and being able to say, okay, now look at what we got for Siakam in total. So, um, but the other thing is it's just, it's just hard to generate picks right now because you know what? Bobby Marks had that stat that what 11 teams controlled. What did I don't remember? 75% of the tradable first round picks. So, like, of all the picks that can be traded right now, because some because of the Stepian rule yeah. and protections and stuff, like that, it can't be dealt. But of the ones you could actually trade at the deadline, 75% of them are held by 11 teams. This is purely an instinct. I Like I said, I don't want this to be construed as reporting because I can't definitively say that a Bruce Brown trade is going to happen. But just my gut says, you know, the Lakers and the Knicks are two teams that are still motivated to make some kind of move and there presumably will be more. So I tend to think that Toronto will come up with something that they like for Bruce Brown between now and Thursday at 3 p.m. Certainly no guarantees, but, you know, Bruce Brown, DeJounte Murray, Kyle Kuzma, I think we have to still keep Zach Levine on that list, even though the Bulls, to my knowledge, really only have a market of one team interested and you know, that's Detroit and how interested the Pistons actually are, I think is a matter of debate because the Pistons can certainly point to the Blake Griffin experience as maybe they shouldn't be trading for a veteran with a huge contract and an injury history. Do they really want to go down that road again? But at least the Pistons have emerged as a potential destination for Zach Levine, but, those, I think, are the main people we're looking at. And then maybe the Warriors, do the Warriors end up doing something? And I should definitely include the Nets because I don't think the Nets are trading Mikael Bridges, but 
between Dorian Finney-Smith and Royce O'Neal and Spencer Dinwiddie, there should be some action there. So there are still situations and teams to monitor, and I would put Bruce Brown right at the top of the heap. And the Lakers potentially getting more desperate. Uh, the news coming out today that Jared Vanderbilt has a foot injury and is going to miss at least a couple weeks and potentially even longer. Uh, so that's another you know kind of rotation piece for them that, that they're going to be short here for a little while. Uh, you mentioned the Nets there, Mark, and I did want to ask you about them. So you mentioned, you know, Dorian Finney-Smith, Royce O'Neal, Spencer Dinwiddie. Maybe those are the kind of guys that are, they're the 2.55 p.m. on the deadline because after the guys who you would give a first-round pickup, that kind of first wave of guys you mentioned, if you miss on those guys or can't get a deal, maybe you swing back for, for this tier of guy. Um, but more generally, do you get a sense that the Nets are going to be sellers like that. We've even heard Nick Claxton's name came up, come up as potentially available. They're just other than that. Mikhail Bridges probably isn't going anywhere. Are they the hardest team to get a read on right now? Well, I hope you read the Nick Claxton uh, item on my sub stack. Of course I did write about that's the only newsletter I read Mark. Thank you. Much appreciated. The word I got this week was that Claxton might be more available than advertised. Teams around the league are struggling to gain a clear read on what Brooklyn's intentions are there. Sometimes you hear that Brooklyn is prepared to pay him what he can command this summer as an unrestricted free agent. And then sometimes you hear that the Nets have concerns about paying him and might be looking to trade Claxton. So I think we have to at least keep Claxton on the radar When, when it comes to Dorian Finney-Smith, all accounts as of Friday afternoon, the Nets are still firmly holding out for some level of first-round compensation. There does seem to be a suggestion in the air here and there that they're, that maybe they on Royce O'Neal, maybe, maybe a package of future seconds would be enough for someone to eventually acquire O'Neal, but out of Dorian Finney-Smith, O'Neal, Dinwiddie, you know, again, this is instinctual. This is gut. This is not something that I can tell you. This is more of my read of the marketplace than, than full-on reporting. But I would think at least one of those guys moves between now and the deadline. There's just been so much discussion about them being available. It's hard for me to imagine the Nets keeping all three of those guys. And like you said, that, that might be a deal where we find out in the last minutes before the deadline where those guys go. Another item that was interesting in the newsletter, which we're spoiling here on the show, but that's okay. Um, th- there's a market for Kyle Kuzma, and Dallas potentially might be involved. Obviously a team that you're closely uh, tapped into, but yeah, tell us about the, the trade market for Kyle Kuzma potentially. I'm a huge Kuzma fan, and I, I hope okay. I included him in my list when I was reeling off guys we need to monitor, because yeah, I think that his, situa- his situation is very interesting. I think he's a very talented player, obviously, in a situation right now. The Wizards are going nowhere, and so they're obviously hard to watch. I think Kuzma's a better defensive player than he shows playing with that team. But, look, the word had consistently been that the Wizards wanted at least two firsts for Kuzma. Okay. And then a story emerged this week in The Athletic with David Aldrich and Joshua Robbins that, you know, the Wizards might not be so firm on that. The Wizards might be willing to trade him for a little bit less. So is that an attempt by the Wizards to try to encourage 
more action, more offers. Dallas only has one future first in 2027, but Kyle Kuzma is the kind of player that the Mavericks would like. They need a four-man. They want a four-man with some offensive creativity to play off Luka Doncic and Kyrie Irving. They've got Derek Lively, who's the center of the future and the center of the present. Do they have enough to get Kyle Kuzma with only one first? I think Dallas would have to include either Olivier Maxence Prosper or Jaden Hardy in that deal to make up for the fact that they only have one first and Washington get more for Kuzma somewhere else. Sacramento is known to be Kuzma. Sacramento has been known to be huge Kuzma fans. And, um, you know, I would look, Kyle Kuzma has a really, really good, a really favorable contract in terms of when you're trying to build a team. He's making 25 plus million this year, but in year four, it goes all the way down to 19 million. So with both Kyle Kuzma and DeJounte Murray in Atlanta, to me, the Wizards don't have to trade Kuzma now. The Hawks don't have to trade Murray now. These guys are going to be, they're going to remain desirable and coveted by other teams because in this new NBA, their contracts look like bargains. I mean, these are, you know, all-star or borderline all-star talents making a lot less than the max. So I don't think either the Raptors or the Hawks have to rush into anything if they don't want to. And what, I mean, the Wizards or the Hawks, sorry, I got so uh, you wrapped up in my, you mentioned Kuzma's favorable deal there. Um, another team that is hard to get a read on because they've overperformed and, you know, maybe they could be buyers, maybe they could be sellers. Um, I I would be surprised at this point if the Jazz were to explore anything with Lowry Markkinen, but he like he only makes $18 million next year. Um, what do you, what is your read on the Jazz situation? And I mean, look, I, I don't think, it doesn't sound realistic that Lowry would go, um, but they obviously as an overperforming team have some interesting pieces as well. Um, but they're a team that like, they don't own their own pick unless they finish in a certain spot in the standings too. Um, so there are they a, a similar, similar to what we talked about with, with the Nets, a, a little bit of a tough read here, six days out. I don't think there's anything going on with marketing back at the December 15th point when trade season was launching. I reported that there were teams determined to test Utah's resolve to see if they could pry him away somehow. And basically all of that talk has gone away and quieted down. Nobody expects Utah to really entertain Lowry Markin and offers. He's played as well this season as he did last season when he made his all-star breakthrough. By all accounts, Utah wants to re-sign him and make him a part of their future. Now, Jordan Clarkson, Kelly Olynyk, Taylor Horton Tucker, you know, their names continue to circulate. And I think when Danny Ainge is your CEO of basketball, you always expect moves rather than non-moves. So do I expect the Jazz to do something between now and Thursday? I would say yes, more than no. My most pertinent or interesting update on the Jazz is you know, Colin Sexton's name keeps coming up as a potential trade target. But when I've checked that out, I've been, it's been suggested to me that, you know what, he's not as available as he's being portrayed. And you can understand that because since he's become a starter, he's been fantastic. And he's been a huge part. You know, Utah started out 7-16, and 16, 
they're they've dropped a couple games under 500 now, but I mean they've been a good team now for a good two months, and Sexton as a starter has been a big part of that. So I'm not saying they absolutely wouldn't trade Colin Sexton, but I think certainly I think the price has gone up if nothing else, and I think it's the Jazz are always going to be interesting to watch again because Ainge is capable of anything. All right, last question. Maybe this is jumping ahead of uh, schedule because, you know, after the trade deadline is over, everyone now moves to the buyout market. That's just mm. typical how it goes. We'll see. Obviously, this year there's different rules and second, you know, second apron teams can't maybe fully get certain guys on the buyout market. Um, but obviously in Toronto, we're, we're, we're always rooting for Kyle Lowry no matter where he is. And we just want to know where he's going to be because right now, obviously, he got traded to Charlotte, but he's not going to be playing for the Charlotte Hornets. And I'm sure right. the Hornets will be looking to make a trade and maybe they'll get something because he is a big expiring. But most likely, this is going to end up in a situation where he's bought out and he might get to latch on with a, a team. So, you know, where are the, the early signs of where he might potentially be? Because I, I might want to hop on the Kyle Lowry bandwagon. Well, Philadelphia is the one suitor that I can confirm. And I don't, okay. unfortunately, have my list. Maybe you guys can help me track it down while I'm rambling on here. But there, I, I am actually looking very forward to the buyout market because I think this is really what's going to be one of the first things that kind of slams home for the general NBA public, this different landscape that the whole league is looking at now in this new CBA because seven teams and presumably more than one on that list of seven would have Kyle Lowry, Kyle Lowry interest. Mm-hmm. can't sign him because the, they're either a second apron team or a first apron team. And uh, D- Boston's on there. Denver's on there. Phoenix is on there. I think Milwaukee's on there. But like I said, I'm doing, I'm doing that off the top of my head. There are seven. I just know there are seven teams that cannot even sign Kyle. Whereas Philadelphia is not on that list. And so they would naturally have, and you know, I've been told they will have some interest if Kyle does make it to the buyout market. I think it would be difficult for Charlotte to find a follow-up trade with Kyle because, yes, it's an expiring, but $30 million is a big number. The other kind of wrinkle I've heard there with Charlotte is Kyle is considered likely to end up as a buyout candidate, whereas Gordon Hayward is far less likely if mm-hmm. the Hornets don't trade Hayward. Based on my reporting, I don't get the sense that Gordon Hayward would be eager to surrender his bird rights, which is what you have to do in a buyout scenario, but I, I tend to think that Kyle will be one of the most sought buyout players available if that's the way it goes. And, and look, I mean, I haven't spoken to anyone in Toronto about this, but something tells me that there would be a conversation. Do you want to just bring him back there? Oh, because, or, you know, ceremony and just, you know, I don't, you know, I would imagine Kyle wants to go to a contender, yeah. but yeah. I would also imagine he has and still has quite a bit of fondness for for the six. So, yeah. I, you know, again, that is, again, pure speculation on my part. I have yeah. not heard the Raptors as a potential suitor, but I'm going to guess that if Kyle gets bought out, that that would be a topic covered on the Raptors show. Hey, you know, he's always welcome home here. You know, anytime you want Kyle Lowry, come back. Um, the, the eight teams that you mentioned, uh, the Warriors, Clippers, Suns, Bucks, Celtics, Cavs, Nuggets, and Heat. Those teams cannot add a player via the buyout if their salary was above uh, the mid-level, which is around $12 million. Right. Kyle's making thirty, so he would slide into that. 
And yeah, I mean, it does limit the market a lot because again, typically these, you know, that's this is the point of the new rule, right? You can't just let these teams like load up, but that's always used to what used Lakers to happen. Lakers are not on the list, if my memory's correct. right, though. Correct. Yeah, Lakers, Lakers are on the list, so, right? So, so I think that would be another team to keep an eye on for Kyle. Would you know if the Lakers can't make a move? Obviously, another ball handler and a vet like Kyle would appeal to them. So that's in Kyle. Even with that list of teams, Kyle's going to have options. Oh, for sure. For sure. All right, Mark, we appreciate you fighting through, you know, uh, symptoms to, to, to get on the show. And, uh, you know, we'll hope you feel better, and we'll, we'll call you again next week. Hope it didn't sound as bad as it felt on my end. You guys be good. We will talk pre-deadline. All right. Mark Stein. Go get the Substack. It's, it's really good, man. It's really good. There was, like, at least three already this week. Um, and just chock full of information, which sometimes we come on the show and just completely spoil. But um, so one thing I wanted to take away from that was the idea that, you know, the Lakers and the Knicks are the ones most ardently pursuing uh, Bruce Brown. And the reason I asked about the picks was because I'm thinking, like, can you get a player instead of the picks? Mm -hmm. Maybe, okay, maybe the first round pick doesn't materialize, but maybe there's a player on those rosters that you would like to see taken back. And, yeah, I mean, for me, if – whoever the Raptors get rid of Bruce Brown for, um, if they do choose to do that, which does seem likely, I would like to see them bring some more forwards into this group. And I think from the Lakers' perspective, they do have some forwards that aren't like necessarily like headliner, blockbuster kind of returns, but like, would you have an interest in taking back a Rui Hachimura? Would you have an interest in taking a Jared Vanderbilt? Like, uh, Vanderbilt, it's tough to say with like a, a nagging foot injury now, and it's also he signed an extension before the season that doesn't kick in until next year. Okay, it's like it's very reasonable money if Jared Vanderbilt it's gets like back to it. Million, yeah. But he's like really struggled this year. He um, has, yeah. So, Offensively, he's kind of a zero. No. Offense. Yeah, and on top of you know we've been down that road <laughs> here in Toronto. Y'all want to go back to Vision uh, Six Nine? Yeah, Rui, I have <laughs> uh -huh. I have more time for. I okay. think right. you know a structure where you're taking back Rui and getting that pick from mm -hmm. the Lakers for Bruce Brown is something you could talk me into. Okay. A straight swap, I think no. I think I'd, I'd prefer to just make, because Rui's got a couple years left, and even though it's a pretty yeah. fair deal at, like, what, 14, 15 million per? So right uh, now he's making 16 next year, 17 the year after 18. Okay, so, yeah. like, that's completely reasonable totally for reasonable Rui Hachimura in the yeah. current cap environment. Yeah. But the turning Bruce Brown's $23 million player option, or team option, rather, and all the flexibility and your potential to have max cap space this offseason, I know not everyone cares that much about having max cap space, but there's a flexibility component for mm -hmm. trade, for getting paid a first-round pick to take on a salary from these these apron teams, things like that. Um, I don't think, without getting that pick back, I don't think turning Bruce Brown into two years of Rui is is enough. You need the draft equity uh, attached to it. The other side of it is, instead of a pick, do you get, like, a lower-end prospect and, like, a second back? So, like, yeah. you know, say yeah. Milwaukee was interested. Now, Milwaukee's complicated because it, it's tough to make Milwaukee. the salary math work for them. All right. But, like... You'd probably take it back, like... Like Bobby Portis, Bobby Portis or Pat Connaughton is yeah. the salary okay. matching. And then, like, what if you could get Andre Jackson Jr. in a second? I'm down for that. Or, I'm, you know, the I'm New York example everyone's kicked around is, like, well, you get Fournier and you get Quentin Grimes back. And maybe you pick up an extra second in that deal that. or something. The issue with the Grimes thing for me is, like, we got a lot of guards right now. Yeah. Like, how I, do you find minutes for all these guys? You I, mean, I mean, you you just play crazy small and figure out who's a part of the future. Like, I, I realize there are fit concerns. At this point in where the Raptors are, yeah. my primary concern is you got to get more talent in the door. I hear you. So I hear you. you can, I if you got to play some four-guard bench lineups with Jonte at the five, like, and, and that brings you back a better player, then, you know, hey, we're only interested in taking back a small forward. Like, 
Dallas is another example where like they're not going to put Derek Lively Jr. on the table. Yeah. So the guys you're bringing back are like like it's hard to your green as the prospect ish mm. guy, right? So right. Um, there just might be more of those guys available. Um, to your point about the picks, the way I feel about it too is like, and I I do remind people of this sometimes that it's not the sexiest thing, mm-hmm. but like that's money, like that that's trade capital. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If, cigarettes in prison, you know, yeah, you don't have to smoke them yourself, but yeah, yeah you like can, you could do other things. Yeah, that's a whole, Alonzo G's whole career was that. It's just like I'm gonna yeah. get trade around as a human trade exception and get like Luke Ridnour, um, oh god, things like that. So yeah. they're. Like, you don't want to acquire a bunch of second-round picks and, like, your main takeaway from the trade is, like, well, maybe next year you can use those three second-round picks to pick up a Bruce Brown type. But maybe by the time you're competitive again, you could use those second-round picks to pick up. Like, it's just, I don't know. That's how you keep yourself in the mix for for trades and Mm -hmm. stuff. So it's not, you know, I don't think anyone's going to be, like, super excited to fire up 2K and be like, yeah, instead of Bruce Brown, I've got four second round picks in 2026, wow. but that's how the, the trade, the trade economy works. Mm. And uh, you know what? I, I like that Milwaukee proposal because to me, Milwaukee needs a perimeter defender. They've needed that all season and they need somebody who can do it in the playoffs that, you know, has a proven track record. And I think Bruce would be a nice fit there, but again, we'll see. I mean, this is, this is the most trade talk we've ever do for Bruce Brown. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, here's, I have one other thing for you on the Kyle thing. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so let's assume, like, let's rule out Chicago, Atlanta, Brooklyn, right? Um, Like, those teams are in the play-in mix, but we don't really rate them, right? Uh, So here are the teams that can sign, uh, whether it's Kyle or Hayward or whoever, uh, and are either in a playoff spot or, like, in the play-in mix. The Knicks, the Cavs, the 76ers, the Pacers, and the Magic in the East. Okay. The Wolves, the Thunder... The Kings, the Pelicans, the Mavs, the Lakers, Jazz, and Rockets in the West. Now, some of those teams have some, like, hard cap stuff. It, it would be a little tough. But there are some fun landing spots yeah. there. I like Kyle with a lot of those teams, honestly. But, you know. Um, I kind I had talked myself into on the show, like, Kyle to the Knicks because the Knicks are so fun right the now. The Villanova really connection. Yeah. We're already, you know, kind of rooting for OG or whatever. The Thunder don't need a backup point guard. Yeah. But that would be really fun, too. That would be really fun. I just, I can't see him getting minutes in that scenario. Lakers, I think he'll definitely get minutes. Knicks, yeah. he'll definitely get minutes. But uh, we'll see. Those are the storylines we're going to be tracking. But uh, at least for today. Time now for Between the Lines. Brought to you by Betvers. Take a chance. Blake, what, what you got for tonight? Yeah, so I got an injury update for you before we get into this. Raptors are plus four. Uh, the over-under is set at 231.5. Jakob Pertl, Emmanuel Quickly, RJ Barrett, all questionable. Oh, so okay. potentially nice. headed for some returns here, but no updates yet. Jonte Porter is going to be kept out because of the back spasms that okay. he left last game with. And then on the Rockets side, uh, Alperen Shingun's questionable. He's got a, a non-COVID illness. So that popped up on the injury report this morning. That would obviously fundamentally change what we're talking about here. Um, we're talking like there are four starters in this game who are questionable. So a bit of a tough one to figure out until we know the status of, again, Pirtle, quickly, RJ Barrett, Alperen Shingun. We did Jakob Pirtle's impact yesterday in the this uh, around a spicy stat um and then obviously you and i the other week did you know the fred shangun mm-hmm. assist stuff how, how are you feeling with this many question marks um i mean first off it's it's undeniably positive when you're upgraded to questionable you know what yeah. i mean like the direction of this is that they're they're moving the right way rj surprising to me because they spoke at practice yesterday and darko said that rj did not go through contact in practice and so i feel like you know, that one might be less, like, more questionable versus Jakob and Quickly, who seem to have gone through it and, you know, have been 
on the verge of getting back. So it'd be great to see those guys back. Um, I think it'll be a defensive affair, or at least it should be. Um, the Rockets have done a good job of that. I mean, they've been a little up and down. Like, they'll have some great performances, like when they, you know, smack the Lakers, but then they'll then maybe disappoint the next night against the Pelicans kind of thing. I mean, there's there's young, there's they're still whatever, but definitely sure that Fred will be up to play this game. And Dylan Brooks is always up to play against the Raptors. He's always antagonized, uh, you know, he just wants to show up when he's playing the Raptors in particular. So I think because this game is in Houston as well, the Raptors have had a pretty poor road record. I think I'm going to lean towards uh, the Rockets. But, you know, um, if you get Jakob and, and quickly back into this thing, then maybe it flips it a little bit. It gives you a little bit of an easier time to put some pressure on the paint because otherwise, you know, you put Brooks on Scotty, you, you, you know, we'll, we'll just see how that sort of limits the, the extent of the Raptors offense. But uh should be a fun game. I'm, I'm really fascinated to see how uh, Scotty responds to Dylan Brooks' defense. Yeah. And might, just Dylan might, Brooks in general. There should be some trash talk yeah. back and forth, which will be really fun. I uh, hope he does the stare down for... Does he do the stare down for everybody or just LeBron? No, he does a pregame, every pregame. Every pregame, yeah. he just stares him down. And then, like, a couple of the Canadian guys have tried to, like, break him. Yeah. And like, and, So I, I would bet RJ's in his face during the yeah. stare down or something like that tonight. Okay. Uh, defensively. Even if Jakob's back, yeah. would you look at Scotty on Shangun or would you play that straight up and have Scotty on uh, Jabari Smith Jr.? I play that straight up. Okay. Yeah, I play that straight up. I would stay more closely at home with Shangun. And if Fred wants to beat us with like five, six, seven, eight pull ups, which he'll definitely try to do, let's be honest, um, then you have to live with it. You know, and I want to see the timeline burn if he has like a 30 piece and beat the Raptors. Um, or, but conversely, if he shoots like, you know, 11 for 20. Or I guess 11 for 20 is good. 11 for 30. And uh, they lose. I would also like to see the timeline burn in the other direction. It'll be fun either way. The timeline burn in either way. Oh, it's going to be a toxic night on Raptors Twitter. I can't wait. That's the big forecast. Like, even the best case scenario, which is like, I guess that Fred also has a good game and the Rockets are fun, but Scotty's awesome and the Raptors win. Like... There's just, there's no way there's the conversation is going to be oh, uh, a It's going to be a very one. petty conversation tonight. But. So, so I got to say, not to get too uh, inside sports media, but mm. I'm doing the pregame TV tonight yeah, that yeah, you did yeah. the other night. You did such a great job, and the sweater oh, you wore was you. very nice. Um, everyone that I wanted to talk about is questionable. So I don't know. <laughs> Enjoy uh, Jordan Wara. Yeah, sorry man. in advance, Danielle Michaud. Uh, we might end up talking about Jordan Wara and Cam Whitmore instead of uh, Jakob Pertl and Alperen Shangun. Yeah, Cam Whitmore's a... Yeah, he's going to play hard against Raptors, too. But anyway, that was Between the Lines brought to you by Brett Rivers. Take a chance. And we're going to take our last break of the day. I've been your host, Willow. You've been listening to The Raptors Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network, brought to you by Campbell's new Chunky Spicy Soup. Fresh views on everything in the National Football League. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Raptor show on the Sportsnet radio network. I'm your host, Wayne Lou. Uh, this one's really special. And this is why you got to watch it on YouTube. You got to watch it on TV because the audio medium for this one will not be enough. I know a lot of people just listen on podcasts. You got to come through and, and, and look at the video. So joining us for the final segment today is president of Kalani Jeweler USA, Akram Kalani. Uh, first off, welcome. And, thank you. Uh, thank you. Will. Thank you for bringing all these pieces, man. I appreciate it, man. We got lucky to have Van Vliet's piece right here in Toronto, knowing that yeah. he's uh, playing for the Houston Rockets right now. So yeah, I'm glad to have it right on the show. I appreciate the invite. This is Akram Kalani from Kalani Jewelry. 
We're the official jewelers of the Toronto Raptors. Uh, our first location located right in Forest Hill um, in Toronto. And our second building is getting built in South Beach, Miami, mm. right in the heart of Miami on Lincoln and uh, Washington Avenue. I look forward for that to come up. So oh, yeah. to keep the rise and the motivation for all the young youths that's following Kalani Jewelry. And I know we have a big um, factor in, in the inspiration of uh, our business for everybody that is young and they see us being part of the Toronto Raptors. So it's becoming more bigger for the culture and the yeah. hip hop industry too. No, for sure. I mean, that's how I got connected, right? Was yeah. the connection with the Raptors got connected with Steven. And, um, you know, I, I was able to visit the shop yesterday and yes. just to get a sense of, um, you know, the, the history and, and sort of the work you guys do. And I thought it was a really interesting story from just a Toronto perspective, because we'll get to that chain. We'll get to the work that you guys have done with some Raptors with the mother you know, famous players. I think people might have heard about Stephen Curry, for example. So we'll get to the, all of that. But I wanted to talk about the business because I didn't know this. You guys started out at a flea market. Correct. In Scarborough. Tell me tell me about the story because that's an incredible ride. It's a crazy story for, for people that know Kalani Jewelry and that's been following Kalani Jewelry, uh, following the Instagram and social media since we ever started. I started actually Instagram 2012. But our business was actually established 2001 right at the flea market in Scarborough. And uh, as we first started, this is uh, the jewelry business in our family has been passed on to us through generations, hundreds of years. All of our family were practicing jewelry making. But when we came to North America, we were able to take in the heritage from our families and jewelry making and implement the hip hop industry or the hip hop look with the bling bling. Now, about 20 years ago, uh, the business and the hip hop jewelry wasn't so popular, but slowly, slowly the world many businesses, many organizations like the Toronto Raptors mm -hmm. started to endorse the hip-hop industry more and the culture of hip-hop. And that's why you find uh, the rise of, of the Raptors after 10 years ago when you started to see Drake get involved and you start to see yeah. more and more of the young generation falling in love and winning the championship too. It made a big difference. So with Kalani Jewelry Rise starting from the flea market, it was all from the support from the people that seen us putting our effort and time into the client itself yeah. by involving them in the jewelry making and educating them. That was the biggest factor because in the jewelry business, uh, a lot of people are missing or poor into having the education mm. done right by a jeweler or, you know, or people making their studies and stuff. So we're thankful enough to be able to actually grow with the community of, uh, of the, the yeah. hip hop community here in Toronto. And definitely we made a difference with the, with the organizations of sport, with a lot of uh, players from basketball, baseball. Uh, we even had the Buffalo Bills visit us all the way from Buffalo when we were in the market trying to figure out who oh, is wait, Kalani Jury. Because this is the thing. This, the flea market is, is pretty well known if you're in Scarborough, but it's Warren Eglinton. Yes, yes. And you, so. and you had the Buffalo Bills come through yes, the most, flea market. Yes, so the team and most of the players are still there. So wow. this was an inspiration. That was due to the fact of us working on the standards, we were yeah. able to put up standards so that way we don't lose our clients. Mm. So we put up standards in our making and we innovated our designs completely out of the box. And gotcha. we were able to bring in new designs, new technology, new craftsmanship into our jewelry that made uh, the world speak Kalani jewelry before we even moved out of the free market. I got you. Well, you guys are now in force, so you guys are soon to be in Miami as well. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about the chain right in front of you, right? So this one, I think for any Raptor fan, they've definitely seen this a couple of times. This is Fred Van Vliet's yes. uh, chain that you guys made custom for him. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, first off, it's just it's, it just happens to be here because he sent it ahead of time, right, to get yeah. it clean. He's going to pick it up when the Rockets play the Raptors next week. Um, but take me through the ideation and also the creation and, and, and what is actually in this thing because it's, it's – in real life, it's crazy. It's like, a, it's like holographic in a way. Yes, uh, you know, the, 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 the whole craftsmanship and the work that was done on Van Vliet – this is his trophy piece, basically, when he got re-signed with the, the Toronto Raptors after winning the championship. Uh, we were um, we were lucky to actually meet Van Vliet when he was at the 905 Raptors, and we were oh, wow. able to create this logo with him when he first started with the Toronto uh, 905. And uh, we built a small little piece. Mm-hmm. And when he moved I on... It used to be much smaller than yes. this, like maybe like a tenth of the size. Exactly. And it had a little bit of diamonds. And then when he moved up into the Raptors, he made the same piece fully iced out with a tennis chain. And as he won the championship, he wanted to have the Toronto Max look on his piece. And he wanted to put the money back, bet on yourself. Now, um, to, to, to really describe, this is his logo. Made in rose gold and white gold. Fully studded and iced out with the diamonds quality that used by Kalani Juries or VVS, DEF, an excellent cut. Now, this one is done with two plates. The first plate is white gold, the raised plate, which is contain his logo and rose gold with the money bag and the number n- number 23. So oh, if you see it's right here in the oh, back right here. Okay, so okay. every time he looks down, he remembers his trophy coming in here. And the chain, the Cuban chain, to accommodate the whole piece, as you see it right there. Yeah. Now... He was not only the one person that actually we were lucky to meet with and were able to work on creating his logo. We had Stephen Curry, too, coming yeah. to our building uh, at the time when COVID was happening. He was staying in here for like three, four months. Mm. And I got a call and they said, you know, I mean, Aisha wants to visit the Kalani Jewelry Complex. We were ready to accommodate him. And as he seen the jewelry and the making and he went through the factory, he even asked us to go through with him and start to create his own logo with him. Oh, wow. And we were able to bring in his logo, made in white gold or rose gold, double placed the same way. But we were able to bring it to perfection to where people can see it, which is the three points. Yeah, That's yeah, what yeah. he famous with. And the SC for Stephen Curry all incorporated in one. Uh-huh. So this was a, a big one too for us, including um, Chris Boucher from the Toronto Raptors, Gary Trent, now yeah. his piece is the most iconic piece made out of Kalani Jewelry with the Toronto yeah, Max I, finish, I, too. So you don't have the one, unfortunately, here. Um, but I think I've seen it because I, I went to the Raptor City Social, and I think you guys had a stand. You guys were one of the presenting sponsors. And I think I, that's when I saw the piece. And I, I believe it has, like, a gigantic, like, red ruby in the middle. Or yes, like, the red right? ruby to represent his birthstone and the JR to represent his uh, first initial and last initial, including the thunders and rain dripping on on his initials okay yes so okay when when players come in obviously there's a you guys have designers you guys have you know crafters everything like that um how much is it like players bringing their own ideas because you know what i mean like when, when you come up when you're trying to make it and eventually you do make it and you become that successful you can actually turn these kind of ideas into reality so i'm sure yes. they have some ideas as well like fred's piece for example is this like fred coming in with the idea and just you know coming through with the you know, uh, creativity or, you know, how does that kind of collaboration work? You know, first, first, first of all, it all starts with the communication and the relationship that you put out with the player themselves. Once the player starts to feel comfortable with the, with the person that they're working with and on creating their logo or anything that they're yeah. working with, they start to tell you more about their life story, how they feel, how they came up, what do they see themselves, how do yeah. they see themselves. And that's when you start to absorb from them. And you start, we start to sketch and design ideas for our players based on 
their perspective based on their imaginations when they're speaking. We absorb these imaginations and we start with a sketch, one yeah. simple sketch. That sketch turns into two to three till the final step. Now, all this is the most important steps when it comes down to designing any piece because you cannot pick a computer to create for you a logo. It has to be something mm -hmm. out of the box completely. And yeah. that's what Kilani Jewelry always stands for. Designing different jewelry, making people stand out anywhere they go with our astonishing craftsmanship and quality, you know? Mm -hmm. And this is where it starts. As soon as the, the player or the client agree to a design or a sketch that we actually created for him, it goes from there into actually modeling, computerized, 3D rendering, where they make him, we make them see it completely on how it's going to look before finished product. Mm. Once they start to see that, you know, the piece starts to come to life. And, you know, with Kalani Jewelry and uh, the, the Toronto Max standards, there's nothing we touch unless it comes 100%. That's mm. why you see the water, the flood. Now I'm looking at the camera right here on TV. It makes yeah. me so proud because I never see it the other way around, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I hear you. This is great. So this is how it all started. I no, That's really interesting. Now, okay, this is my question with this is, you know, what, what, how do you discuss budget for something like this? You know what I mean? For, for the every man like me, I'm like, you know what? I can't conceive this. Maybe if I work my whole life, I can get to that point. Um, but, of course, the conversation is a little different with, like, you know, celebrities, with, with musicians, uh, you know, players and stuff like that too so how, how do you approach budget with something like this so they tell you like hey we got like you know it, it just walk me through that part you know it's usually it depends on the clients okay. uh, with kalani jewelry you know when you when you see kalani jewelry you always see the the quality you see the craftsmanship mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if it's plain or with diamonds the very most important thing for kalani jewelry is making sure every piece that gets made by kalani jewelry or designed by kalani jewelry it comes into the hand of our client with complete satisfaction. Mm. It has to be satisfying our standards before it reaches the hand of our client. And when you look at budgets, every person does have a budget. And with Kalani Jewelry, we have no budgets in anything. We can make you anything comes in from smaller goods for nameplates, gifts and ideas, yeah, because yeah. you must have, you could have a client that could spend hundreds or $300,000, but at the same time, these same clients like to buy some type of gifts for nieces, nephews. Yeah, of course christening, baptism, and it makes a difference in there. So the budgets are always open, wide open for Kalani Jewelry. All it needs, the client knowing what they want, mm -hmm. knowing what their budgets are, yeah. and know they are ready to make the move. Because right, right. these are the most important. Even when you want to get married, the first thing you want to know, make sure that the lady yep. says yes, yes before you make your move. So the very most important, you want to know if she's going to be ready for you or not. Uh -huh. Then from there, you get to know what she likes, what she doesn't like, yeah, and then yeah. you put in your budget, and then you create the engagement ring. Same thing with any customization. You have to know what you want, create a budget, mm -hmm. and then go in and be ready for this. Now, when it comes down to the players, when I first met him, he had a budget. Yeah. So when we created the first piece, because he has three pieces. The first one he gave out to his brother, mm. and the second one is the one, the main trophy after he signed in with the Raptors, and the third one is after winning the championship. Yeah. So the first one he had a budget, and we had to maintain that budget and make sure we meet of course. his standards. Yeah. Once he felt comfortable and he felt uh, the, 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 the quality and he felt the amount of comments and compliments that he got, he realized he wanted something more powerful. So we made mm. the second piece. Now he gave up another budget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the third one, the man had no more budget. Oh, okay. He's like, just go hard, bet on yourself, put the money <laughs> back, write on my piece, and let's make it different. <laughs> so that's how uh, it's usually work. It's, it's, uh, my dad calls it the Kalani um, uh, addiction. Starts yeah. with one, and it ends up with ten. Hey, 
can I just ask, what's the budget? Like, bring me the ballpark for this. Uh, a budget for a piece like this, um, what can I say? With the making and because of the loyalty of clients, everybody has uh, a standard of getting in their prices. But a piece like this will be over 100K, that's for sure. Mm. A chain like this, over 130000 140000 Okay, all right, yeah. you do the math, you do the math. Yeah. Um, last big client I wanted to ask you about, working with Drake. There's an iconic... Uh, Oh, I don't know how many pieces you guys have done together, but I know there's definitely one. There's like a, it's like a big O. It yeah. weighs 3.5 pounds. Uh, yes. Features about 2,100 diamonds. It's the one that he wore when he was writing views. He, the he views, used, yes. He used to say he was put that chain on. It was so heavy and it was a stinking chain. And yeah, I mean, I actually, chain and Tatum. That's what they called him. Yeah. Chain yeah. and Tatum. So talk, talk, walk me through that one. Obviously, everyone wants you to know, know about Drake. Drake is the most iconic human being ever Toronto have witnessed. This yeah, is the best way I, I could I say I don't it. Think for there's an argument, anybody, really. yeah. anybody that is out of Canada and uh, was in my era growing up, uh, going through the culture of hip-hop and finding the toughness and the hardness from people accepting the culture back then and trying to make it out there for a Canadian artist mm -hmm. to be able to get to the south side of our borders and be able to make a difference, it was very tough. So to find someone like him uh, out of Canada, you definitely have to give him flowers, uh, his flowers because he was able to make a difference in a lot of people's lives. Yeah, of course. He opened up the doors for a lot of artists. He opened up the doors for a lot of athletes. He opened a lot of doors. He opened the door even for the Toronto Raptors Absolutely. to actually get the championship, you know, because once game. he signed an all-star, yeah. getting in here. So definitely Drake made a difference in our life. Um, I, I, really, uh, I really enjoy having the moment that I actually met him, dealt with him, and was able to collab on many pieces with him, including the keys for uh, DJ Khaled. We created other pendants, uh, an OVO teardrop with rubies. I remember we created a charged up piece for him. We created an October very own pendant with the O and the red ribbon. There has been a lot of pieces. Uh, we even did a, a commissioned by him an owl for Kevin Durant with the 35 blue when he was signed to the golden state when he was first signed to them oh that's just like a gift uh, that was a gift by drake wow. to uh, kevin durant and uh, we actually have a photo of it on the kalani jury so working with drake definitely yeah. made a different the first time we ever worked with drake it was around 2012. um we never posted any of the pieces that we worked with in with drake because a lot of people that comes to kalani jury even back then when we were in the flea market they found themselves in a safe heaven where you don't see us going around, posting it, going crazy. Sure. They found more of privacy. Yeah, you do need that part. And, yeah. and, and making jewelry, shopping big like this, or making, creating pieces as gifts and stuff like that, you want people to be more private about certain pieces that you make. So we were very private about our relationship with him until we actually made the big O, and that's yeah. when he posted Kalani Jewelry and said made from the same city, which is with the yeah. same people. And the big O made it different. Mm -hmm. He was waiting for the big O to finish. We were delayed yeah. to wrap it up for him on time for the Views album. And we literally came in. He made a shift on the timing for the Views album. I believe it was April, end of April, yeah, April 29th. Yeah, it got delayed. Yeah. It got delayed for two weeks, and yeah. it was all because of the big O. And oh, when the big O okay. finished, that's when you know all the right. stinking chain came together. That's uh, that's an amazing story. Well, hey, listen, Akram, thank you for joining us today. Thank, thank you for you, icing out the studio. It's never looked this good in the studio. Man. But we've run out of time today. So I've been your host, Wolu. You've been listening to The Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. 
brought to you by Camel's new chunky spicy soup. It's time to get fired up. Make sure you find the Raptors show wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. And please rate and review the show today. Best of, of all days, you gotta look at, you gotta find the YouTube, you gotta find the TV. Go look at the pieces; they're they're incredible. But uh, thanks to our guests, Michael Grange, Kelly Eco, Mark Stein, of course, Alcum Kalani. We'll be back next week.